The aforementioned Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us for the weekly update on Fridays here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Uh, thank you on this very special morning, and uh, I, I am glad to see you upright. I wasn't sure, but uh, <laughs> you, you acted with great restraint last night, but except for the simple, which was really uh, amazing, and uh, you should have a lot of nachas and only some achot in, uh, in your family, and it really very impressive and uh, yeah, good family. Hey, Malcolm, we're doing everything we can for the topic of Jewish continuity. You know, it's a topic you and I talk about all the time. We're doing everything. For the reality, not the topic. That's You're right. With the reality. That's, That's right. what we have to, to do these days. And by the way, and I know when you're on, I often wax philosophic, and we do have a lot to cover regarding the news. But don't think, anybody out there, don't think this doesn't cross Malcolm's mind when he's at an event like last night. Because you, you don't just look at the individual simply. You're, 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 you're thinking and, and envisioning, especially with your family's history, Jewish continuity and how wonderful it is to celebrate not just last night, but the whole process and, of course, Bezrat Hashem, future generations. Uh, first of all, it's the ultimate revenge on history, both uh, of 80 years ago and more recent and, and past. And uh, Jewish continuity is the purpose that we're here in that seed generation after generation when we had been written off. As you know, not not even 50 years ago, yeah. the future of, uh, of Orthodox Jewry, the future of Jewry was, was put in question. We still have questions, but I think people see the immense, immense growth and the generations that follow. Um, it's, it's reaffirming, and it, it is um, a challenge for us, actually, to make sure that that is the case. And Malcolm, uh, last night you saw my in-laws, and you saw my sister-in-law and her, and her daughter and granddaughter, and uh, how commonplace is it to walk into a room with members of the Jewish community these days and four generations, like an automatic these days, four generations are sitting there having a great time. So when we grew up, we didn't have three generations. Right. I, I didn't. I don't think more than one or two people in my class in school, or, or as we grew up, had grandparents. And today, we take that for granted yeah. and uh, remark about when they're great grandparents. But they're even. I was uh, a recently where there were great great grandparents. And it's. Um, I mean, it's still unique. Yeah. But coming out of a generation that lost a lost generation in between it's even more impressive i was at an event recently where there were three great grandmothers to a kid in the room in the room which was amazing wow. and um and uh i i always say this but i'm just basically you know uh, uh, saying it in a different way that you said it but i always say this and that is that uh, i remember a time and i'm you know i'm not from that many generations back i remember a time when kids in our community did not realize that a parent could have a parent you know like you say there are only one or two in the class, but they didn't realize it. They didn't understand that, you know, what parents could have parents anyway. So Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Mazel Tov to Yonina, to Eitan, and uh, we look forward to celebrate Please God in November. And uh, Malcolm, I'll make, I'll make sure that you clear your schedule for the appropriate dates so that we could celebrate together. Please God. God there you go. All right. Uh, speaking of celebration, November 1st, a big celebration in Israel. <laughs> I don't know if we call it a celebration, but it's certainly going to be an interesting day. Um, so it's postponed instead of October the 25th. In fact, it's the following week, November 1st. We're talking about the new elections in Israel. 
Tell us about the new prime minister. He's now officially, if I have this right, he's now officially uh, the prime minister. It's Prime Minister Lapid who now leads Israel. Uh, what, what should we expect over the next few months, if anything? And what do you think of the transition that took place this week? Well, Israel proves it's a democracy, a vibrant democracy, but also a solid one that you can have a transition to power. Uh, without any uh, gunfire, without uh, a lot of verbal gunfire, but not uh, actual gunfire, which is rare in the Middle East, and that the the uh, people of Israel will move to an election, and the the jockeying will start, and the, the democratic process will start immediately as they move towards November 1st. Uh, but with the Yom Tovim and with summer vacations and everything, they, they will have a concentrated period in which to... Uh, to campaign, to get the message, to try and distinguish themselves from one another. We'll see which parties survive and which individuals survive into the next election. Uh, I think that the people in Israel are very tired, and I hope they will come out, despite this being you know, the, uh, one of many elections in recent years. But I think they, they Bennett got a lot of credit from people because he did it in a mental way, turning it over to Lockheed not uh, dragging it out and not um, and living up to the commitment that is supposedly in the coalition agreements, but he didn't have to do it the way he did. And he announced also that he will not be running anymore and turned over to Ayala Chaked, the leadership of the uh, Yamina. Mm-hmm. We'll see what, what's going to be left of, of the Yamina when this is over. But Lapidus has a long history, has seemingly changed from what he was many years ago. He was a journalist, by the way, and uh, came into politics with with very little other experience in this regard, except covering politics. Uh, He was a popular figure. Uh, His father was Tommy Lapid, who was uh, quite extreme in his views. This is not the the same positions that... uh, that year has taken, and he has been reaching out to other groups. Whether what he will be like as a prime minister will be hard to tell. He has six months, uh, mercifully six months, to an unfettered, because without Knesset in session, the cabinet can just act within reasonable bounds, but they have a lot more freedom in, in terms of taking uh, certain actions. Uh, so the you know we're going to see what happens, how the campaigning goes, what the role of Netanyahu will be. Will they be able to forge any one of a dozen different possible combinations of different groups? There are negotiations that are going on, and they some even collapsed already in the first 24 hours wow. between different individuals about forming uh, the coalescing to see who could either put. Netanyahu over the 61 mark, a, a coalition led by Netanyahu so far, no matter what people add up, he doesn't get beyond 59, and, you know, you need 61. So all of this is stuff that will clarify, in, and and also perhaps his, his uh, status in the various trials, most of which are going very well for him, uh, but the um, the one with the gifts, I think, is, is the one people are watching. So the, those who speculate that Yamina and uh, Likud together can get 63 seats, you're saying that that's not reality? I didn't say it's not reality. I said, it, it, you know, this is all speculative. But meaning, but, but meaning it's a long shot, because right now we're hovering in the 59-60 area. No, not with Yamina, but we just don't know what's going to be left of Yamina and how many seats that that gives them. And also you have a lot of people who, who 
uh, are willing to join coal, uh, with the Likud, but not with the Likud led by Netanyahu. Right. And that even goes to people who were very close to him, like Yudon Saar and uh, Yuli Edelstein. And these guys have already come out and said they won't participate. Barkat, near Barkat, who is a pretender also for the leadership, um, is, is more amenable to, to continuing, I think, in some form under uh, an interim Netanyahu-led coalition. So Netanyahu could become a senior statesman. Netanyahu could become the candidate, the the coalescer of, of a coalition, or he could, um, you know, he could. I doubt that he would continue as a backbencher, as a opposition leader, yeah. and just being uh, on the bench. What does all, all this say about Bennett's uh, prime ministerial leadership? I mean, uh, some would speculate and some analysts have that by the very fact that he's leaving politics and because of, uh, you know, some of the things that went wrong during his during his term that he was simply an ineffective prime minister. Is that fair to call him an ineffective prime minister? Well, he gets high marks from some uh, in, in the media and some of the analysts for sustaining the coalition, for bringing together a very varied coalition, showing that people could work together from left and right in one coalition. I don't know that it's been proven because the government, you know, lasted one year. Uh, it is the shortest prime ministership in history, so he does get into the Guinness Book of Records. And, <laughs> the Israeli and Only to be taught, perhaps, by Lapid, who could be a six-month <laughs> Prime Minister, uh, depending upon what happens on November 1st. And so I, I think, you know, we, we have to wait till the dust settles as people judge what he did, how he did it, that taking on Iran, taking on some uh, building the domestic, the coalitions uh, in the region, uh, the domestic tranquility. These are, these are all things that have to be measured. Some will say that it was a holding action. Others will say, well, he, he tried to form consensus and try to move Israeli politics in a new direction. And will some of those things be reversible? Will the participation of, of Arab parties in governments now be a taboo that's broken? And will we see others try to, to build the 61 votes, including them as well. All unknowns at this point. Yeah. Uh, with the Lapid government or the Lapid prime ministerial uh, uh, caretakership, should we call it that, uh, now in full swing, um, is, is, is Israel in any... I mean, I know that you've described how the cabinet can act. Um, and, I, and I assume that that's also for Israel's security, right? That they, if, God forbid, something happens, that they're able to implement certain things, right? That's not just... Completely. Right. It doesn't affect the function. Right. So, I mean, should we expect anything? I mean, outside, again, God forbid, of, you know, something that requires them to step in, should we expect much over the next six months? Or he's really a caretaker, and, you know, don't expect there to be much of a difference, uh, you know, in terms of whether there would be a prime minister or not. On the security front, things move ahead, and there's too much right now going on for it not to be the case in Israel's, obviously, situation for all of its history required that in any circumstances that the security be able to function fully, decisions need to be made. So the new prime minister will have the ability to make decisions and to authorize actions by the military, Um, maybe even more so than uh, before, but the, but 
um, and and the situation in the north, you know, that Hezbollah has built 15 outposts along the border with Lebanon. These are uh, listening posts, but more than that, we don't know what's inside. The UNIFIL troops that are stationed there just stand there and watch them as they put up these places. They may have underground facilities in, in, included in some of them, but they are literally just a, a stone's throw from the border and sometimes on the border. Um, usually near military bases, so they they are monitoring the activities and and being able to report on it, including one that was built just near where the three soldiers were kidnapped. Uh, so the even though it doesn't get a lot of headlines, we should not think that the military threat ever diminishes because Iran is always going to look for vulnerabilities, um, whether it's to Hamas, Hezbollah, through Yemen, through any of its other proxies. Uh, and we see how they're building up their military capacity, even at this time. And they don't care who the Prime Minister is. America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Mayor Fertig sitting in Monday on the 4th of July. Matas is 500th JM Sunday. We're celebrating this coming Sunday at 7 a.m. Eastern time. Keep that in mind here at the NachumSiegel Network. By the way, did you see, I don't know if this was a headline, but I remember writing it down when I, when I saw it. Israeli spies are causing unemployment in Iran. Did you see that? <laughs> they're, uh, they're, I mean, I, I thought, in all seriousness, I thought that when Israeli spies infiltrate and someone ends up, you know, being on the wrong end, I thought their life is over. I didn't realize that sometimes they get away with just being unemployed after that. So the, the well, first of all, the reason that they're saying it is the the they fired um, a key the key. The leader, Taib, who was a minister for many years, for 10 years, he led the Basijis, and he's been the head of the security services, and they, over the, it's been ascribed to the botched operations in Turkey, where supposedly assassin, assassin uh, groups were um, sent to kidnap, attack, kill Israelis right. in Turkey on right. vacation and so, Israeli officials. So why doesn't he get executed? Why does he get, why does he get off uh, you know, just losing his job? Oh, don't worry. What, what you see is not necessarily what he gets. Uh. And he's... Um, you know he's been complaining about it and saying he he begged for another year, and they they obviously did not uh, give it to him as after as I said ten years. Right. He's not the only head to, to in the security area to flow, and the fact that they're talking about it publicly is to me very important. That the, it, it's a message that people got and the um, that and the, and that they acknowledged that Israel was able to hit. And as you know, that they have had multiple operations. There were explosions in in and around Tehran again. There were, um, as as they reveal, the facilities, whether Fordo or, or Natanz, are both back online with more and more advanced centrifuges and more and more um, uranium being enriched and faster, and bringing them always closer to the to the breakout point, the fact that they are launching another missile with a cradle in it but no for a satellite, but no satellite because that same cradle can hold a bomb, and that's one of the components of getting a, a nuclear capacity is the launch vehicle that will carry it, the weaponization, which is where they're short, and the enriched uranium, which they've proven the, the capacity to do. Why do they turn down all this money from the United States? 
They don't turn it down yet. Why, but, but, well, the, why does the media portray it as if the U.S. is tossing money at Iran and they just don't well, accept it? There is. There, there's a lot of incentivizing, and uh, you know, it could map to hundreds of billions of dollars over the next few years. Yeah, they say even up to a trillion by 2030. But, but, but and the reason is, number one, that oil prices have gone up so much that their income is up about $30 billion this year. They are transferring the stuff from Russia in, to bypass the sanctions and they make money there and they've increased the amount that they're exporting especially to China and the US and the others have not done anything really to stop it they, they turn off the transponder so you can't actually trust trap trace the the specific ships but we know and we know the amounts that are are being exported uh, so the, the amount of money that has come in and they say the non-oil exports have also increased more than 30 percent this year and they talked even some said record amounts uh, of uh goods that, that they were able to, to sell. So number one, it's that they're not, in, the, the sanctions are not being enforced sufficiently and you have Europeans and others who are buying from them, but mostly China and, and others in their Venezuelan thing, you know, they, they boast that they're part of the, they're trying to become part of both the Shanghai group, the BRICS group, the others, you know, to break out of their isolation. And you saw the, the, um, Meetings that have been taking place where the EC was in Turkmenistan for the meeting of the literal states to the Caspian, where 270 million people live in those literal states. And Iran is trying to use those nearby countries as places where they can sell their goods and make money. I... um um, I was, about to, I was about to ask you something, but um, anyway, so yes, okay, so that's the situation with Iran, and uh, their presence in South America continues to expand. I saw a story about Brazil and how they're trying to court, is it? They're trying to to um, to get more involved in the in a relationship with the government of Brazil because of the number of people and the number of resources that they control. Hundred percent, they are they're active everywhere, and the fact that we're talking about resuming relationship with Venezuela and to to um, benefit Venezuela by buying their oil and stuff is, is outrageous. I think we backed off of the purchase uh, that was proposed, but Brazil is facing an election. Bolsonaro, who's the president, is very pro-Israel, but like all the other pro-Israel people, or most of them in the elections in the last year or so, it doesn't look like he will be reelected. He will fit very stiff challenge, but we lost in Colombia, we've lost in Chile, we've lost in Costa Rica, friendly governments. We're left with almost none in South America, and Turkey and Iran are both taking advantage of it, but Iran has huge infrastructure, Hezbollah infrastructure, training camps, etc. in South America, and um, the, the, the fact that Argentina is holding a plane of Venezuela because the pilot was associated with the IRGC and they're saying it's in a violation of um, that the ship, the plane was in violation of U.S. sanctions because it used to be owned by Mahan Air, which is under sanctions, and they just changed the name. Uh, and this is the only airplane that Mah- that uh, this company um, has. So it's clearly just a front uh, operation. But what's happening in South America should be of much greater concern to people as in the United States, and unfortunately, it isn't.
Yeah, including Washington. Um, you mentioned earlier the uh, uh, the attempt in Turkey, Israeli citizens and diplomats traveling there, etc. Is, is, Israel's ready to lift the travel warning. I'm curious. It's meaning to Turkey. I'm just curious. Is it, we 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 get the impression, especially when Israel's involved, that the United States, you know, issues travel warnings willy nilly, like they just, you know, they panic right away and, and toss one out there. Is Israel like that as well, or if they're issuing a travel warning to a place like Turkey, they are, you know. It's a very serious situation. It's a rarity that Israel would issue one. Well, certainly with Turkey, it's especially sensitive. And Turkey did cooperate with Israel, and they caught, they arrested a number of Iranians in a cell that they think were operative, and that's why they've lessened the warning for travel to Turkey, even though there are still some who, who are reluctant because, the, you know, if, if that was Iran's objective, it's not so hard for them to do it still. But but because it's been so exposed, I think they're backing off, and that, and that was one of the reasons why Taib was uh, among the two key security operatives who, who was removed. So the, the uh, Israel does not lightly issue warnings. And it's one thing if it's a health warning because of an outbreak of, uh, of COVID, let's say. But it's, it's a different story when it's a security alert. And, you know, you have a lot of, of Israelis in Turkey, a lot. And, of course, it creates panic. And, and people were locked in their hotels for days because they couldn't get out. And they... they were afraid, and there are others who just went around about their lives day to day as before. The Jewish community certainly didn't change what they were doing. Right, understood. Uh, anything of note at the NATO meeting aside from the uh, anti-Russia rhetoric? Uh, anything having to deal specifically with Israel, Iran, etc. at NATO? Well, we still see the weakness of the part of the Europeans to stand up to to it. To, to to the um, to the Iranians to the activities that they engage in in the countries in the NATO countries uh, there is more and more concern being expressed but the French of course ready kowtowing and, and saying that they're prepared to negotiate even though we know that Iran has been active in France and other European countries carrying out activities both against uh, dissident Iranians but also uh, espionage and other activities that they are complete violation of the agreements in every respect uh, of the nuclear agreements, but even beyond that. And I think the you know their reaction to the meetings that took place this week in in Bahrain with UAE, Bahrain, United States, Morocco, Egypt, Israel, the negative forms steering committee getting together, showing that this is an ongoing process and the stepping up the cooperation and everything from security and food to uh, clean energy. The, um, the, um, the fact that, that all of these meetings are taking place is, is a reflection of how seriously people take the threat of Iran. That is the, the glue that is bringing people uh, together. And hopefully now more positive activities because we're seeing the trade, we're seeing the other exchanges between Israel and, and these countries expanding remarkably. Do the other NATO countries also blame uh, uh, Putin for everything or that's uh, something unique to the United States? Anything detrimental going on, it seems, you know, he gets the blame. And I'm wondering if other countries are taking, other countries' leaders are taking the same approach. Well, they do. They, they blame, well, obviously they have to blame him. It's his decision, and he is. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, when it's a bad economy or gas prices are high or things are not going well, it seems like the excuse from Washington is always Putin. I'm wondering if other. Oh, and that, not to the same, not in the same way in that regard. We're unique in that way, huh? 
Well, no, I wouldn't say medium. Germany was <laughs> was slower because they were so dependent on oh, right. energy from uh, right. from Russia. Everyone's got to watch and, their public statements, right? That's and, right. But now they're they're all looking for alternative sources and all stuff that they should have been doing all along in any event. Um, but now looking to Israel, which is really remarkable that Israel becomes an energy supplier to to Europe, right. which. Um, you know, wasn't willing to help and didn't allow certain steps to be taken that could have advanced uh, the use of, of Middle East oil. And, it, and it, it's brought together Egypt, which has the LNG, the liquefied natural gas capacity. And uh, there are various pipelines still being discussed with uh, Greece and Israel, Cyprus being at the core of it. Um, so, no, it's things that are happening that were not anticipated, and a lot of the Europeans are probably not thrilled with having to be dependent on Israel, um, but they, it, is, it is a reality, and I think um, uh, Europe has to come to, to a reckoning, and the fact that NATO takes steps that fly in the face of, of Putin, uh, even though it will take many years for Sweden and Finland to be a member and Putin is already putting forward other proposals, you know, compromise and setting red lines. He's so bogged down in in uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, he has been exposed, his army is exposed, even though that they have reversed the, the tide of the war and are occupying more and more of Ukraine and taking back and taking uh, key cities in Donbass. Uh, still, the, um, I, I don't think anybody's going to say that their military Equipped them, uh, acquitted themselves with uh, distinction. What would your grandparents have said that uh, if they knew that Israel would be uh, supplying power and energy to European countries? His, history is funny, huh? Or, or supplying helmets and right. other material to the Ukraine would have, I think, shot a lot of people not so long ago. Uh, but I think that this is part of the miracle. I mean, we, we don't even take note anymore, and that's why I mentioned the meetings in Bahrain. Uh, when I mentioned somebody last night, they, they didn't know anything about it. And people do follow these things. It, it's really unbelievable if you see all the areas of cooperation, but the fact that they get together in the capital of Bahrain, an Arab country, an Israeli diplomat, sit with the with the Egyptians, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, others are, are there, and, there, and there are all sorts of forms going on simultaneously. It, it, it's it's truly amazing. When when our kids don't believe that there was no, this was not always the case, we have such a responsibility to to teach them history and let them and, know. And look at the story of Iron Beam. You know, we all talk about Iron Dome now that. Israel is talking about selling UAE and Saudi Arabia Iron Beam, which is the laser, a, a laser system. It's still not even available, and they're already talking, and the demand is, is to to acquire it, and it's really the key because to respond to the to the onslaught of rockets, which Saudi Arabia faces and the others face as well from Iran, this is the only cost-effective answer. All right, a couple of quick things. The gas leak, the, the, the killer gas leak in Jordan, that was simply an accident? As far as we know, nothing else. And uh, Ben and Jerry's will sell in Israel, to the much much to the chagrin of Ben and Jerry, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the company, as uh, but its parent company Unilever, um, agreed to sell to the to Zinger, meaning they're not the ones producing it, right. and he is only allowed to put 
the name Ben and Jerry's in Hebrew and Arabic, not in English, on the containers. I have no clue what that significance uh, means, but yes. it's it's sort of a gesture to the bad guys. But what's important, I think, here is the fact that Unilever announced that it will, it never has and does and will not support BDS and boycotts of Israel, and that it continues to employ two thousand people in Israel and all its products are available. It's an important message to others who may have thought of succumbing to the pressures of the of the BDS movement. Yeah, no question about it, and, and it's something important to keep in mind. Finally, Malcolm, I, I need your comment on this because um, much has been written about how there are so, so many fewer Jewish members of Congress now, and that number is probably going to dwindle even more uh, as we get to the general election November 8th. Um, and, and I made a comment to someone who's really in the political realm. I said, you know, sometimes it's better for us to do all the fighting and all the advocating from outside the position of power. And they said, no, if you're not in the game, meaning if you don't have somebody in the game in Washington, it's really hard to have the effect that I, uh, you know, am suggesting. I was curious your your opinion on the matter. Well, if it's uh, somebody doesn't have to be Jewish to be a supporter of Israel, and right. if you look at who are some of the key people introducing the, the, the legislation, they're not Jewish members. Uh, and I, I don't know if overall the number of Jewish members from New York, it's certainly true, will be down to, to one or zero. Right. Um, and and uh, but around the country, Jews are being elected in really remarkable places and, and without big Jewish constituencies. So I'm not sure that the Jewish presence will diminish, but sometimes it's really non-Jews who take the lead and are more willing to, to you know, be be confrontational in support of Israel. We saw it now with some of the measures that have been taking taken. Uh, when you look at who's fighting for, to ensure that the aid to Israel is, is uh, unconditional, uh, the, uh, many of the recent measures you see that non-Jews have been playing a very critical role. Also, some Jews have been uh, very supportive. So I'm not particularly worried. I'm more worried about who gets elected than right. what their. Uh, credentials are, what their religion is, uh, as we've seen over time, but it's, it's going to be, a, 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 could be a big game changer this November election. I hope people will go out and register. Those who didn't vote, just look at, at how few people voted, which means that a few get the voice, get the power, but a few more could change the outcome of the election. So when you complain about certain races and the people who, who got elected, Number one, we're not producing the candidates, and two, if we don't produce the vote, then we have no reason, we have no right to, to complain about the result. So it's really a message to us when you have big transitions possible. People talk about switches of 70 votes in the House or 60 votes, but whatever, and in the Senate it could be as well. It's still a long time till November, and we shouldn't predict it, and that's why everybody should be involved following it and that the elections at the local level are really critical as well. So people should should not dismiss the primary. We have the congressional primary coming up in August in New York. Nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. And the turnout, as I saw in my district when I came there, I think it was number 30 in the afternoon. People don't realize it. The, the power that you could wield as a uh, as a voter, especially in a low turnout election, is so amazing, and people just don't get it. Hopefully our community will learn more and more about just how much of an effect we can have, especially in the low turnout elections. Uh, Malcolm, I thank you. Um, uh, I guess we're on for next week, please, God, and have a wonderful Shabbos.
have a Chavez and happy fourth. Oh, yeah. I should have a fifth and the fourth. But, That's right. But, uh, we should thank the God for America, too. We have to yeah. uh, always no have a Karasatov and not dismiss it. No question about it. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.